Welcome to the Data Leadership Lessons Podcast. I'm your host, Anthony J. Algman. Data is everywhere in our businesses, and it takes leadership to make the most of it. We bring you the people, stories, and lessons to help you become a data leader. Today, I'm joined by Evan Terry. Evan is an analytics and data management professional who believes in the power of making better business decisions through data and quantitative analysis. He has spent his career working with organizations that share that belief and work to better organize their data and measure the things that matter to them. Evan has been a consultant, a chief analytics officer, and is currently the VP of operations at C-Prime, a consulting firm focusing on helping firms navigate business and systems transformations. Evan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So, and we go way back. We've known each other for a, a long time. We've had um, some some shared experiences working and consulting together. Uh, we're now both on the industry side, and we'll talk some about that today. But, you know, I gave a little bit of an introduction, but why don't you take a moment and give our audience a little bit more background on, on your career and kind of your journey through this space and how data plays a role, especially in what you do currently, but how it's been kind of this consistent theme throughout your whole career. Sure. So I started in uh, I started in data somewhat accidentally. I was a software developer at the beginning of my career, and I I was given the opportunity at at some point in time, relatively early, to get involved with the, you know the birth of the data warehousing world in say the the late 1990s, early 2000s, and that's really got what got me interested in data and in, in uh, you know working my way through first just being you know a data analyst and working on the on the, the quality of the data. Uh, through uh, data architecture and designing systems, and that's really what what brought me into the data world more more generally. And I've spent my time doing, you know, implementing business intelligence solutions and uh, working on enterprise data warehouses, and more recently, enterprise data lakes. And and so that's really sort of how I got into it. And what I was really fascinated about w- when it came to data is the the way in which no matter what business you're in, and I've, I've worked in this field in a variety of different industries, what the, what you can learn about the business through the data and the way that while very businesses are different and industries are different, they're often trying to solve very similar kinds of problems and they often have the similar kinds of, of, of challenges in terms of solving those problems. Uh, so that's really where how I got into data and what really fascinated me about it. Uh, as you mentioned, we've worked together in consulting, and that gives you an opportunity to see a wide variety of different uh, different industries and clients struggling with various challenges. Uh, t- today, what I do within uh, within C Prime as an internally focused person is I'm I'm really trying to get better metrics around how our professional services business is operating, uh, better data collection, better data quality, better KPI calculation. Trying to introduce new ways of looking at the data so that we can get the uh, the relevant uh, metrics about the business up to the executive team so that we can all then make uh, better decisions about how to move forward. So, yeah, you know, it's interesting. I think I think of us as kind of a rare breed that end up in this data management and strategy space, especially doing a lot of the, the management consulting work that we've done, but starting from that technology perspective. And so that, that gives you this kind of builder mentality that I think it sticks with you in a, in a way that I don't know if if people that have first come from the business side as data consumers quite have the same perspective on. Could you talk a little bit about how being a builder, being a systems mm-hmm. developer and a programmer, it you know influences how you approach data or how, how it uh, influences what you do today in this kind of operational side role? I, I think when you start in 
working with data at, at a very granular level and you're in the weeds as a, as a developer. And then maybe as you transition into doing a more technical role within a data analytics, within the data analytics space, what it does is highlight, I think, the, the, the single common problem that everyone, I think, has, which is I'm collecting a lot of data, but I can't necessarily trust it to tell me the truth. I can't always necessarily uh, rely on it to be present. And so I think when you're working in the weeds and you're actually doing that, uh, the real, the difficult work of constructing data flows, ETL, if that's what you're doing, data analysis around the quality of the data that you have, it really gives you a, a better sense from a, um, then when you get to the point of trying to, to set strategy of where the problems are likely to come from and how you're going, regardless of the technology that you employ, what are the, the more business-oriented challenges you're going to need to get around? Um, and, that, and that's something that I find, again, across all industries that I've worked in, all clients, it, it's a similar problem. Well, we're collecting the data, but it's not reliable. We're, well, we don't always collect all the data we're supposed to. Uh, these, are, these are problems that come up everywhere. And I think when you understand that, you can weave the strategy better into how the business strategy is supposed to work or the business operations, the flows, the processes to then be able to, to, to extract something useful in the end. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And, and I've, I've just always found that having that technology background and, and continuing to nurture it. I mean, we, you kind of need to keep doing that because you, you're wired that way. Um, it gives you an appreciation for that granularity, like you said, like it, it, and, and the, the sometimes difficulty or the full breadth of the work involved to accomplish these data things that we would like to accomplish. And, and I think that, you know, so much, you know, comes back to recognizing the, uh, suitability for use of data. You know, some some organizations call their data governance programs, for example, they just call it data quality programs, or they call it some sort of variant of that. Uh, because that's really fundamentally what so much of it is about is, is connecting those data consumers, the people that want to do stuff with the data need certain information about that to be able to take the actions they want to take in a reliable manner. And so much of that comes back to that granular level of the systems of how did it get captured? You know, how did it get recorded in the very beginning? It's a lot easier to get that right in the first place than to go back later and try to fix it, you know, after the fact. And, and, well, you know, that kind of, um, you know, perspective as, as that kind of builder of data systems, I imagine has, you know, a lot of ramifications in what you're doing today in a in a truly internal operational role, and 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 I would love to talk more too about you know professional services firms in general. I think have a rich amount of data available to them, and under most circumstances, because you're tracking hours, you've got invoices, you've got you know proposals, you've got all of these things that have relatively easy to capture data surrounding them, just from the systems that you're using to do that. But there's a there's a very difficult um, you know conundrum that professional services firms face in building out the capabilities to harness the potential of this value because that's kind of what you do for your clients all the time. So can you take the time 
to put those systems in place for yourself? Like, when's the right time to do that? It's not when you're five consultants. It might not be when you're 100 consultants. Is it when you're you know 500 consultants? How do you grow that capability alongside needing to deliver so much of this uh, to, to your own clients? Like, when do you make that, that leap to do the internal focus stuff? Can you talk a little bit about your experience in that, whether either at your current firm or in, in previous roles? I'm sure you've seen that in, in numerous places as well. Well, I, I think there's there's definitely the shoemaker's children problem of of when you're when you're involved in delivering a particular product, regardless of what regardless of the industry that you're in, you're, you're not necessarily as good at that same thing when it comes to your own internal operations. Mm-hmm. Um, I think when it comes to professional services firms, you're right. The challenge is you know, when is the right time to start putting all that in place, mm-hmm. especially in an in an industry where the product that you're outputting is not a tangible one. So yeah. in many respects consulting or, or any kind of professional services operation is is less of a an engineering problem and more of a social organization problem and and so what you wind up with is a uh, that challenge of saying well I don't want to institute structure too soon because mm-hmm. that will make us less nimble and when you're small you have to be able to be flexible and nimble and be able to do different things almost at the drop of a hat but at some point in time, you say, well, I want to collect the data that I need to be able to collect to manage the organization at scale. And I think from a professional services firm standpoint, that's really the tension that exists in, in terms of managing operations is you, on the one hand, you get to a certain size and you need to be able to uh, properly leverage the data that you have and be intelligent in the way that you're operating for efficiency purposes. But any of that those sort of common processes or efficiencies, tools, data collection, ultimately is 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 at odds with that notion of being flexible and dynamic and being able to adapt to whatever the client has asked you to do within reason to be able to to, to then be successful. Um, and that's frankly, I think what uh, every consult- consulting firm that I've been part of has always struggled with that from the standpoint of, well you know, we don't want to constrain our ability to sell and deliver to our clients, but at the same time, for our own purposes, we really need some structure and some guidelines around how it is we're going to operate. And it's that tension. It, it's it, what I've been what I've been trying to do is find that balancing point to say there's enough structure here, there's enough of a framework here that we can at least understand what's likely to come. We can there's some predictability. There's some uh, there's some consistency while still allowing individual groups to, to to oscillate, to fluctuate in the ways that they need to in order to meet the the business need. And that I think is a, is a real a real challenge for any organization that's growing, but particularly in the professional services space. Yeah, it feels like in, in the professional services space, it's amplified in, in some ways, but it, it's actually, you're right, it's true in any organization, you've got to get this balance between the structure and the flexibility. And And for those folks listening that aren't part or haven't been consulting or or in professional services firms, they really do focus most of their energy on their clients. And it's always about how do we connect what we're, you know, a service offering to our clients. And it's so outwardly focused. I think a lot of professional services or consulting firms really struggle just to even be introspective because so much is dependent on their existing project queue. What have we been doing lately? We're so focused on that. It tends to be hard to have a longer term, um, 
you know, uh, memory associated with that because so much depends on what you're doing in terms of your projects and your clients in that moment. And it may not be as consistent as the operations of an organization that produces something like in a, in a product setting or something like that, where you've been doing the same basic business for the last 20 years. I've seen consulting firms reinvent themselves just because of the natural flow of their client base you know, multiple times in that kind of span. So I think it's, it's, you know, a really important, you know, consideration that that flexibility is a real need. It's not just a, an excuse to have less structure. It's actually a really important component of the business model of professional services organizations. You have to evolve very quickly and anything that adds friction to that process becomes a hindrance to that evolution, which is counter to the idea of putting structure in place in the first place. So it's it's a fascinating um, scenario. And now you're sitting in that like all the time and on an operational capacity. But I want to flip it now. So we've talked a little bit about, you know, this, this, how do we run a professional services business? Or how do we support a professional services business with better data and some of the, the considerations you have there? But let's go back to when we were facing our clients and the kinds of things that we tried to do uh, for clients, whether in our current roles, like you and I are both now back on the industry side, we both worked in consulting and how that you know, building up of those capabilities or the kinds of challenges that you face as a as a data builder, as a data professional in a larger organization. Can you talk about some of the common challenges that you've seen or some of the things that you've identified as particularly important to get right as you're trying to start building these kinds of data capabilities in organizations? Sure. I, I think one of the one of the biggest challenges goes right back to the very beginning of of collecting the data. One of the biggest, I, I wouldn't say mistakes that people make, because in some ways it's its not some, a mistake that you can avoid. It's just a reality that you have to acknowledge is that you have, in many cases, organizations in the business of collecting, recording, um, and, and, and responsible, in some cases, for the accuracy of data that they themselves don't use. And that is one of the biggest places, regardless, again, of what industry you're in or what business that you're in, that's where all the problems come up. So it's really a function of incentives. When you talk about who's who is incented to make sure that the data is accurate, timely, complete, and so forth, and it, and if you you don't have that piece op operating properly, then what you wind up with is downstream consumers who really do need the data to do their jobs can't react appropriately. Um, one of the one of the best examples that I've seen of of an of a organ of a an industry that got it right in terms of understanding that problem was I used to work in the automotive industry on the service side. And you get warranty claims coming in from uh, dealerships for vehicles that have been produced. And for those of you who don't know, in, in almost all instances, warranty claims are paid for by the uh, manufacturer. So there is a certain amount of information that the manufacturer needs in order to properly process them. And they realized early on that these dealerships as sort of independently owned and operated franchises aren't incented to get the information correct. And so they actually got to the point in some cases where some of the manufacturers started compensating the, uh, the, 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 the dealerships for filling in specific pieces of information on the warranty claims. So there's a case where you've got a misalignment of incentives, but you have a solution in place to say, no, this is, this is so important to me to get this right, that I'm actually willing to pay you to do it. 
And that's the kind of place where you say, well, that that may or may not be the solution that you like, but it's a solution that solves that initial problem. Yeah. Well, and and I see that in so many places, like organizations that think that they're going to do better data governance or metadata management or whatever the data initiative is. When you're asking one group of people to put in all the work for another group's benefit, and oftentimes they're like, let's capture all this metadata because it'll be super useful to somebody someday. When you, so you don't even have an identifiable recipient. You just have this general idea that this stuff's important. Well, that's not a good long-term incentivization. Like that is not, that is an imbalanced system right there. And when you have that kind of situation, to your point, you got to figure out how can you correct this? How can you create a system in balance in the long term? Because asking people to do something on behalf of somebody else with absolutely no benefit to themselves will only last so long. It can be done for a period of time. It is very rarely able to be done for a long period of time with a consistent and reliable and successful outcome. I've just, I just have never seen it. So I agree completely with that alignment of incentives, creating the right kinds of mechanisms to encourage people's participation or effort or investment or whatever it is the ask is. How do we do that in a way that somehow it can come back to them or their team or their department or something that they care about in a in a meaningful way enough to justify their their effort? And 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 sometimes it's it you know it's not necessarily to the level of where you see like those donor networks for um you know uh, uh, organs for people's organs that have um you know loved ones who need a you know. Uh, uh, um, you know, a kidney, uh, a donated kidney, a kidney replacement. And they find a way to link five or six or however many different folks, all of whom that can kind of just trade off down the line. And so now they all have a group incentive to do that. Otherwise, nobody would get a kidney. And so it's like that, but maybe less extreme in terms of its consequences, I would hope, under most circumstances. But it's 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 something where if you can chain together the right incentives for the right groups and see and link it to people, how it's going to come back to them in a, in a meaningful way. It doesn't have to be as, as um, you know, uh, tangible as a kidney or some organ, but if there's some sort of chain of benefits where you can say, okay, this is how it's going to come back to you. And it could be in something as, as simple as better reporting or better identification of uh, warranty claims. So let's use the, the automotive example. If you're a dealership, and you have cars coming in. Cars have problems. Some of them are going to be covered by warranty. You submit them to the manufacturer who then factors in and pays you for those warranty claims that you're you're fixing at the dealership. Well, under normal circumstances, to your point of your story, they wouldn't necessarily care that much about uh, capturing perfect data so long as they could get the, the warranty paid for. Well, if there was a system that the manufacturer could produce that would allow the dealership network to much more quickly identify warranty claims or the appropriate um you know uh, uh, the appropriate service for a particular ailment in a car and that could help streamline the whole process would that be worth investing in and you know maybe that would be the case and so it's like it that's a simple feedback loop that by providing information back or a system to make their job easier now they have some skin in the game of of wanting to help uh, make that data environment better. But I think so often we focus, and this is this is a piece of advice for anybody out there who's trying to start a data initiative. Don't start with what you need. Don't start by saying, we want to do this. 
we got to get help from these people. Let's go talk to those people to get them to help us. You're going the wrong way. Think about how does this effort that we're undertaking help people inside our organization, help our customers, help whomever it is that we're trying to serve, and think about the implications of that help, and then work back from there and how you're actually going to do it. I th- see so much of, of when we ask for a meeting or when we try to um, you know, bring somebody into the mix, it's because we need something from them. I would love to see us take on more of a servant leadership approach of saying, how do we um, you know, help others gain benefit first and then figure out a way to, to get the resources we need to make that happen? Um, well, I think when you're when you're talking about that, there there is the the notion of aligning different groups to make sure that there's something in it for each organization. You also have that you know there's two incentive mechanisms in almost any situation. You have the carrot and the stick, mm-hmm. right? So you can either make it be something that is uh, that is ben- mutually beneficial or something that 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 ultimately people are are graded on. You can think about it in context. I've talked with organizations about having data quality m- metrics or or data collection processes be part of people's evaluation, annual evaluations, if you do that sort of thing in your organization. I mean, these are these are different mechanisms that you can use to try and achieve compliance. Um, but but really what it comes down to is that that data that data quality initiative really has to there has to be something in it for everyone involved right. at some level, even if that level is ultimately financial, but it's better if it has it has something to play it has, a, it has a role to play directly in what people do every day. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And, and so I, this comes back to so much of what we do in data is actually about organizational change and transformations. Like it's mostly about that. And it happens to be in the space of data. Um, it's it's something that I think a lot of folks don't realize when they first get into the data world that it's really all about organizational change. And one thing we didn't prep for, and I can't believe we didn't this didn't come up before we uh, uh before now. Um, but I know you well enough, and I know you have a certain um affinity for agile and mm-hmm. how um you know, agile project management and mm-hmm. processes. Um, you know, function effectively in organizations. So we've done work in that and in various capacities. But I want to ask you, because there's debate in this, can you really do agile in the data space, especially if we want to think about building something like a data warehouse? So say we're mm-hmm. building big systems, you and I both built data systems of, of pretty significant size. Can you do that in an, in an agile way? I know my answer, so I don't want to color it too much. But what's, what's your response to that? Uh, my, so if if you'd asked me that question ten years ago, I I I would have probably been a little bit more on the fence about it. But I think today, what I would say is, I think it's I think you have to. I think you have to build it in an agile way because if you, yeah. you the, the reality is, I've been part of organizations before that spent a year or eighteen months working on some kind of a master plan for the data warehouse that involved you know hundreds and hundreds of entities and you know, dozens and dozens of data feeds. And the reality is that, that those, those, those rarely work. The, 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 there's too much organizational change to overcome. There's too much, too many moving parts to take into account. That is no, it, it becomes that problem of no sooner do you have your design all finalized than you realize that six months ago, the business fundamentally changed. And now all your model has to go back to the drawing board. So I think you absolutely have to start with, um, you have to start somewhere and you have to start somewhere that's tangible and manageable 
and start down that road knowing that you're going to have to flex. And, and I think the real challenge in building these models in an agile way is to have enough foresight to, to see, or at least to try and anticipate where the changes are likely to be so that you can build your, you can design your system in such a way that you can maybe not flex without some rework, but you can minimize the rework that you have to do as you adapt and evolve, and evolve your model. So from my standpoint, I think it's critical. That's just the way everything is operating these days. The days of the, the, the Gantt chart Microsoft project project plan are, are on, it's, it's on the wane. So I, I think it's, it's a definitely a, a reality that we have to, we have to adapt it. Yeah. I, I have to agree with you on that. I think that, you know, Agile's especially good at responding to new information. And in the context of building a large-scale data system, and, and to your point, you need some leadership there. You need some vision for what this thing is going to generally look like, but you have to have a constant ability. It can't be a friction-heavy ability to do change requests and run it through a change advisory board and all of that. It needs to be something that's by design adaptive which Agile very much is, to new information, things you've learned, new requirements, new you know, preferences, new customer groups, new business lines, new mergers and acquisitions, all of these things that happen so quickly in business today, we need to be responsive to that. And and I think, you know, one of the things that I think about a lot is the notion of, and the, the kind of ridiculous notion of building to requirements. And, and I this is one of my favorite soapboxes, which is, you know, if you tell me, if you're my customer and I'm a builder of something and you say, here's the stuff that I want and here's the stuff that I need and, and we can gain agreement that this is exactly the best we can do based on the information available to us today, you could give me all of that. But it's going to take me six or 12 months or however long to actually go and build it. And that means very by definition here, it means that by the time it's built, it will be six to 12 months out of date based on the requirements that we had when we when we first understood it, which means that I can never give you what you need because I'm always working with a six to 12 month delay. And so the only way I can hope to be truly responsive to what you actually want and need is to go beyond, by all means, I want to know everything we can identify today of what you want or need, but I need to create some sort of ability to have a vector that says there's a bunch of things that we just don't know but could be in the realm of possibility i need to build within a, a, a way in mind to flex to all of that and recognize as we get more information then i can adjust what it is that i'm building in a way that continues to meet your needs as those two paths converge and we actually bring a production capability to you so that you can use it in the business stuff that you need to do and i mm -hmm. think that Agile is really the best way that I've seen to make that possible. And and there's a whole your religious conversation you can have around Agile and, and the different aspects to it. But I think in terms of principles, which I think is really what it's Agile's all about, is principles, not processes and not particulars, you know, scrum is an adaptation of an agile principle. If we can make that part of how we build our data capabilities inside organizations and how we make the organizational change that will be necessary to make the most of those capabilities we're building, um, you know, to me, that's that's the thing that matters. And it kind of goes back to your very first point is to recognize the incentivizations there and to realize that it's through this, you know, kind of fervent mission of needing to benefit the business in the end 
that drives all of these other conversations that we're having about different aspects of that process or of that whole situation. Um, and, and that's what links them all together. And, and if we try to do any of that in isolation, we're inevitably going to lose our way. Well, and I think what I've always thought of the business and any of its technology underpinnings, any of its infrastructure, which would include the data world that we're talking about here as being two different substances being pressed together at force. Mm -hmm. And what will happen is that if you have one of them, if one of them is, whichever one is less malleable, whichever one will change less, will, will it will cause the other one to adapt more. So if you have systems, for example, that can't change, hey, the change is going to happen. It just means that the business process is going to distort and is going to con contort itself in order to fit the technology. Yeah. And if it's the other way around, you're going to find the technology contorting to try and fit the business process. And so it's that, it's that as long as the imbalance isn't too great, you can still keep the two of them operating relatively, relatively efficiently. But if you have that rigid environment, like you're describing, where you said, I, hey, look, I've, I got my requirements and I'm building this. This is what you told me to build. I'm building it, whether you want it or not. The business is going to keep adapting and evolving and work around whatever it is you build. And in the data world, that means it largely isn't just, it just isn't going to use what you built. You're going to build something for their use. And then you're going to discover it's that no one uses it. And you're going to be frustrated about that, but that's because it, it, other events have occurred and, and your, your, your design was, is no longer is obsolete in a sense. Yeah. Well, it, it just comes back to like, if anybody out there is listening and like, where do I start on something? Measure usage. I want to know what you think of something. I have to know what people are using. I have to know where things are, are, are being used first and then what the performance of that use is. And then I can start to evaluate more scientifically how the system is fitting those needs. Because I think you make a really good point there around how things don't happen in isolation. When one changes, the others will adapt to that and, and either work around it or work with it or what have you. If I have something that's not being used at all, why isn't it being used? Is, was it developed poorly? Was it was it just not delivered to people? Did they not know it's there? I mean, we could have an entire conversation around how data lakes have failed to meet their um, promise. And it's because the people building data lakes put all of the energy into building the data lake. And then they have all this data there and this wonderful repository of all this information. And nobody knows how to work with it. I think most of the time that I've seen data lakes fail, it's because they put all the effort into building it with no effort into connecting it. And that's the hard mm -hmm. part. So how do we, you know, start to, to, you know, get folks to get the most out of the investments being made. And I think it comes back. I mean, this is like the first point you made was around this pragmatic approach to, you know, determining what to do. Cause we don't have the resources to do all of this perfect. And, and we can have theoretical arguments, but, but we have to come back to reality, which is saying we only have so many resources to work with here. And this, you know, and true in professional services organizations, true in all organizations, you only have so many dollars, so many times, so many people to invest at these challenges. What's going to be the biggest bang for the buck. And I think that those of us that have been successful in the space have an in inherent understanding of that. Maybe not, um, maybe not even a conscious, well-developed understanding, but you just have this notion of here's how, you know, I, I choose what to do. Do you have, and, and especially in, in your, in your work now, do you have a simple approach or a simplified approach or recommendations for folks that are trying to figure out what do I do next? How do you figure that out in these highly complex 
environments where there's just so many things you could choose to do. I, I think ultimately, I mean, if I'm going to, to talk about this very generally, I would say you want to tie it back to one of two things. You either want to tie it back to what the corporate goals are, if there's a way to do that. And if that's not possible or if it's not obvious, then I think you want to tie it back to where your greatest pain points are. Mm-hmm. If you're starting on solving a problem, I think you have to first look at it, it look at the uh, almost the Pareto principle of the of the the, the the negative effects. And the reality is almost always that you're going to have one or two problems that are dominating the, the, the space that you're in, that you, if you could solve those two, you'd be a long way further down the road than you are. And so I, I tend to look at, I try and leave the variability of the individual business units alone. And I try to focus on what's common across the business units and then I look at what common problems are occurring across the business units. And if you can, and, and that's really where I, where I try and focus. And then, then it's a question of diving into, well, what is causing that? And you do a little bit of a root cause analysis and you, cause sometimes it might be technology. Sometimes it might be business process. Sometimes it might be data quality or bad data. Sometimes it's just organizational issues. Sometimes the issues are political and, and you have to be working with people who maybe even if it's in their best interest for whatever reason, don't want to play ball with you. And and it's not obvious to the newcomer as to why that might be. But then when you dive into things a little bit more deeply, you can, you can find that out. So I think it's, it's, you have to do that root cause analysis first to come back and say, well, if it's a political issue, that's maybe not something I can solve in my role, but if it's a technology issue or if it's a data issue, or maybe the process issues, I'm going to have to get three or four other people on board with to solve. But I think once you're into that enterprise data world, you really are having to work across business units, um, again, leaving their, their, their distinctiveness at the door, but, but work across the business units to try and, and make the common problems, solve the common problems. Yeah, that I think there's there's a lot of power in patterns, like, and because mm-hmm. that's, to your point, like, different areas of a business or even different businesses or different industries, a lot of their data problems, data challenges are going to look a lot like others' data challenges, right? And I I have to temper that with saying patterns are really useful for narrowing down, but you have to understand what makes that particular situation unique is also incredibly telling of what to do to fix it. Like, so you can, you can narrow quickly, but then to take action, that's the most interesting part. Cause if I can fit a pattern that covers 80% of all I need to know about a particular situation, I can focus my energy on the last 20% to really come up with a, a custom approach to figuring out what best to do in that particular situation. And I think that works, whether we're talking about very large systems, whether we're talking about, you know, a single report, whether we're talking about this notion of being pragmatic in, in the investments that we're making. I think that's a really good um, you know, kind of mantra of, of saying, okay, how do we do things once that can apply across the entire organization, you know, and and help in, in a variety of different capacities that's going to lead us down a path that that could be more productive than some of the alternatives. And one of the things that I would add to that is that I think a lot of times the, the problems that you encounter in organizations if they were as simple as what they appeared to be, they'd have already been solved. Mm-hmm. The, the, the problem that I think is usually manifest in these situations is you have two or three interlocking sub problems, and that's what makes the greater problem unsolvable. And so in fact, when you've, once you've done your root cause analysis and you've determined that process A or group B or data source C is the problem, 
The next thing to dive into is there's probably two or three or maybe more more reasons why that's not an easy problem to solve. And that's going to require an additional level of 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 uh, of analysis to, to come to a conclusion. Yeah, it, every organization seems to have those that people have known for a long time that that's an issue, but it's so massive, nobody wants to touch it. And I think part of being effective in the space is, is figuring out how, how can we loosen that knot? How can we start to chip off little aspects of that problem before going in for the big you know, full blown solution. How can we, how can we solve some of the symptoms first or how can we alleviate some of that pressure and, and route around? I think it, it kind of goes back to the analogy you made earlier of like when you make one decision, there's one immovable object, other things are going to adjust to that. Well, how do we start to clear a little path? Sometimes I use an analogy around like how they build dams on rivers. Like they build a dam on a river by first rerouting the river around where they're going to build the dam, which sounds like an awful lot of work for building a dam, but there's not really any other way. Sometimes you have to do that. And if you can be strategic in how you do those kinds of operations, you can end up with much better results in the end, because otherwise you end up just creating this this tapestry of symptom treating that doesn't actually get you to where you need to go, but because nobody's really called it out to say, this is a problem that we really need to solve. Sometimes it's not known, but sometimes it is. Just navigating that, I think it really uh, makes a huge difference in, in how we approach you know, everything about data in our organizations. It's fascinating. And and this is, I think, why, you know, I certainly love this area so much is that it is really complicated. It is really difficult to understand it. And you overlay human emotion and politics and, you know, organizational structures and, and all of this. And, and it's often not easy to determine what to do. And and that's part of why it's it's so rewarding to get it right and make those changes possible. And I, you know, it, it, feels overwhelming. I think like there a lot of this feels very heavy, very overwhelming. And and I don't want people to get like lose hope that it can be solved. Like if they're listening to this uh this podcast, it can be solved and you can do it. And and I think part of it is just understanding that it often has fallen through the cracks and has become a big problem because of that versus not being something that can be addressed. And and don't feel like you've missed the opportunity. Realize that your organization may feel like it's way behind where it should be. And it may be. But a lot of other organizations have that same you know, current standpoint. You know, if you're sitting in an organization that has no data governance today, has no data quality program or, or you know, metadata program or any of these things that we can talk about in data management, it doesn't mean that you're doomed. It just means that you're probably missing out on potential that your data could lead your business towards. And I do think that again, if you think of it from the from the Pareto principle standpoint, there are I think relatively few organizations that have all the parts of their data management operation humming at maximum efficiency. And there's an awful lot that are that are the struggle with one or two or more aspects of this that that are that are for, you know, it, it's not a universal that everyone's got this figured out, but you. That's that's not the reality at all. Yeah. Yeah, well, with that, I think that is a great piece of advice to to close out on this time. Evan, I really enjoyed our conversation, and I hope maybe we can have you back again, you know, sometime soon. I think there's so much more that we could talk about. I think that, uh, you know, I'd certainly love to have you back. But thank you for joining us today. Oh, thank you very much for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. And thank you for watching or listening today. You'll find links and more information about today's topic in the show notes. 
Subscribe to our show on YouTube and wherever you get your podcasts. Visit algman.com to learn more about Algman Data Leadership and the many ways we can help you become a data leader. Stay safe during these unusual times and go make an impact. <laughs>